Uh, hi, and welcome to another episode of the BCS podcast, The Gem of All Mechanisms. Our guest today is Dorothy Monacoso, who has recently awarded BCS Honorary Fellowship. Dorothy, thanks for joining us. To start off with, it would be great if you could just introduce yourself. Hello, good morning to everybody. Um, I'm Dorothy Monacoso. I'm a professor of computer science at Leeds Beckett University. But my, my background is in electronic engineering. Over the years, I've moved gradually into computer science and computer engineering. Um, currently, my focus um, research areas are assistive and rehabilitation technologies. Uh, but I also work in, in sort of smart cities, smart environments and smart homes. That's great. Thank you. And, and I think that shows, you know, you've had a really varied career. And one of the things that I'd like to pick up on first is just about the um, the work that you've done with the smart homes and the technology solutions um, supporting people with conditions such as dementia and people recovering from strokes as well. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about the work in, in that area? Yes, uh, um, a few years ago, about 10 years or a bit more, um, I became interested in, in smart homes in a general, very general sense, and gradually came to the realization that um, obviously smart homes can be very useful for people who've got who are limited in, in any particular way or who've got any sort of disability. And so gradually came to, to the idea that, well, what if we could use smart homes to support people? living with dementia. And the whole thing sort of grew from there, uh, uh, the whole idea that you can have um, different sensors, lots of sensors in a home um, that recording uh, um, data and, and in a sense monitoring the person uh, and using that data to sort of um, infer something about what they're doing, they, how they're working in the home, how they're living in the home and just generally to support them. So that was the very first um, foray into um, smart homes for me. Mm, that's great. Thank you. And, and what types of um, sensors and technology um, have you worked on? What kinds of um, innovations have you seen? Um, we've looked at all different sensors. Um, gen generally, in, in, in smart homes, you have fairly sim simple sensors uh, um, in, in terms of um, recording the status of, of appliances. Is, is your appliance on or off? Or is, has your, have you opened your door? Have you opened your window? And so on. And these are very simple sensors. But what you can do with them is that with algorithms, you can try and sort of infer what's going on in the house. And, and at the limit, you can actually even try and infer something about um, the person's condition. And, and ideally, that's what you're looking for. Now, we also can use cameras. Um, cameras obviously provide much more information than, than simple passive sensors. But obviously with cameras come issues of, of, of privacy. One thing you probably wouldn't want a camera in most places in your homes, but if you could actually have um, a camera that doesn't actually look at or cover your entire person, doesn't identify you, that may be more acceptable. So these are sort of things you're kind of looking at at the moment. Mm, that's really interesting. And how do you think the future of assistive technology will develop? Because I know that, you know, the smart homes technology and smart cities technology is developing quite rapidly. Where do you see assistive technology going in the future? Like what would be, um, you know, the ideal kind of um, standard for, for people suffering with these conditions to have in their homes? 
my vision is a home that looks after you. Um, imagine you have, um, from early on in your life, um, you have all these sensors and systems in your home looking at you, understanding, sort of understanding your habits, um, looking for patterns in your behavior. And as you change, as you grow older, um, the algorithms can detect any changes that are maybe significant or maybe indicative of a particular condition, especially um, if you think about uh, uh, um, dementia. So the whole idea is that your house looks after you because it knows who you are, it understands your habits, and it can see changes, even small changes in your in, in your behavior, and small changes which may be indicative of, of a change in your particular health. Imagine if you have in this house, it can also uh, um, adapt to you, um, give you advice, help you. So you can no longer achieve something, you can no longer do something in the kitchen and the house actually helps you uh, um, detect that you, can, you cannot um, say, for example, uh, uh, um, use your, 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 an appliance and then for, therefore helps you um, step by step. So for me, that's the ideal um, situation. Mm. How far away do you think we are from something like that? Um, it's it's not that far. Some of the technologies are already there. Uh, um, so in a sense, it's a question of acceptance and adoption rather than mm. not existing. Obviously, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of these algorithms, making them reliable. Because at, at, the particular, at this particular stage, yes, you can get some of these uh, um, um, algorithms work fairly well, but are they reliable and robust enough to just place them in somebody's home? Um, that's the question, and that's where a lot of work still needs to be done. That's really interesting. And you mentioned about privacy with the cameras um, a moment ago, and obviously um, just then about the, it's more about the acceptance and adoption. What have you seen? Is there a sort of trade-off between the technology and the privacy concerns? How how well has it been received so far and, and what kinds of concerns do people have? I mean, yeah, yes, it, it, there, there is a, a trade-off and, and there, there are studies that sort of looked at, at and, and sort of surveyed um, all the adults who need a, a, um, sort of assistive technologies in Oman and, and asked them um, their views of, of cameras. Although, although most people obviously uh, um, wouldn't want cameras 24-7 in their homes, a lot of uh, uh, um, the older adults will look at it in terms of, well, what are the benefits to me? Is it going to help me live independently? Is it going to help help me uh, uh, um, sort of uh, uh, um, my the quality of my life? And there's a trade-off that we automatically, as researchers, are told or assume that it's a no, no. Um, but it's not necessarily. If you look at if it's really going to improve the quality of your life, some people may say yes. But obviously, we're not talking about 24/7 monitoring, as you'll see, say in a supermarket with cameras. You're talking about systems that are slightly more clever than that. And you'll see some research where one particular research coming out of uh, Canadian University, for example, uh, I'm supporting people with um, hand hygiene, for example. Um, the cameras are only pointed towards their hands. So at no point do you actually see the person. Um, so that's already one step, one way we can solve the, um, deal with this issue. Another way is, is, is um, and, and there's some research along this, is that what if you have an, a camera that's intelligent enough that it does the processing on board the camera and the only information that leaves the camera is some textual information. So for example, if you have a fault detector, which is camera-based, when it detects a fall, the only thing that gets sent out of the information is, 
I detect a fall in the bathroom or I detect, detect a fall in the kitchen. So there's no actual image that leaves the camera. Now, this is a much uh, better situation than having a camera which sends cameras um, images out. But having said that, one, to, one could argue that yes, but this intelligent camera could be hacked. That then comes in, uh, you know, brings in the issue of trust. And, you know, as much as the the technology itself indeed, um, indeed. is, yeah, then it comes down to whether that person trusts, you know, the, the security as well of the of the technology. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, we, there's a lot of sort of ethical considerations to deal with. In your experience more widely, um, if we're talking about the ethical considerations, do you think that um, in your experience and, and what you've worked on and what you've seen, that the ethical considerations are thought about enough during that kind of development stage? Yeah, yeah, yes and no. Um, yes, because if you think about um, research conducted in, in universities, um, we all have to adhere to various principles uh, and in order for any project to go ahead of the kind, once people, you have human participants, you have to go through an ethics committee and gain approval for your work. There's a, there's, a, there's a list of, of different uh, 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 um, things you need to be doing and looking for, including um, the sort of dignity and, 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 uh, of your end users, your participants, and so on. So, so from the point of view of the university, we are in a sense covered and ensured that we sort of deal with uh, um, um, ethical issues. Now, when you're working, when it's in the commercial world, um, it may be different and, and, and it's rather more complicated matter. But having said that, there are laws around data protection, data ownership, and so on, and the GDPR legislation that attempts to sort of uh, uh, um, ensure um, we are protected. But obviously, it's a very complex matter. While we have in the in the public sector or, in, or educational sector, there are sort of various uh, policies and rules and so on to ensure that that we deal with um, um, ethical considerations adequately. Um, it's not always the case when you look around uh, um, the world in different different types of organizations and different sectors. And speaking of different sectors, you've actually um, started off your career working in um, more sort of the engineering side, didn't you, with the satellite industry. Um, when you first entered that industry, working in, in satellite engineering, how did you get into that? Um, was it something you were always kind of interested in doing, that engineering side um, of things? Or how did you kind of get involved with that? Um, I've, I've always been interested in engineering. I always wanted to be an engineer ever since. I, I never thought about anything else. I was always trying to build, build or something when I was growing up. So the engineering was always in me. Uh, um, although I must admit, uh, um, as, a, as a kid, um, obviously what you can see in terms of engineering, you see bridges, you see very fantastic structures. And, and mm. I was more interested in time mechanical civil engineering. But um, when I got my first computer, um, home computer, everything changed and it was just everything was about electronic engineering, wanting to, to, to wanting to do computer engineering. So that's really how I started. At the same time, I've always interested in space in, 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 and generally in, in anything that can fly. So I was very sort of um, much uh, um, the kid who would watch planes or go to airports of observation platform just to watch planes uh, take off and land and I could do, spend hours just doing that. So there's always a natural inclination towards anything that flew or in space and so on. So when I got the opportunity to work for Surrey Satellite Limited uh, um, as an engineer and 
designing Dumbbell computers. It was an, it was an opportunity you know, that, that I found very exciting. Yeah, definitely. And as it was something that you kind of wanted to do throughout your childhood, when you got involved with it, was it how you kind of expected it to be? Or what were your sort of first impressions of, of working in that area? I, I had lived and breathed um, engineering all my life. So I, I, I always had it as a hobby. I always um, talked engineering. I always met people with engineers. So there was nothing in a sense new uh, that I didn't expect it. Uh, in engineering. Um, the one thing that, that probably uh, I, I'm less expected, but quite happy, it was a bit of a sink or swim um, environment. Um, you're thrown in at the deep end and, and you either sank or, or, or swam. And so that's one thing which I think possibly could be different for, for, for um, um, our younger generations. Um, because it, it, it's not necessarily the best way to start. Obviously, if you're very much um, an engineer and, and, and sort of that's the only thing you want to do, yes, you'd survive and, and then you certainly do well out of it. You, you took part in our, our recent um, diversity and inclusion webinar, and I just wanted to pick up on a few things around then as well, because you made some interesting points about sort of diversity and inclusion within um, engineering. So one thing is, obviously, although the proportion of women in IT is, is increasing very slowly, they're just accounting for about 20% now of the industry, um, according to our, our latest analysis. And even then, black women make up less than 1% of IT specialists then actually their representation is 2.5 times worse than in other sectors. Do you think that we um, sort of do some campaigns a bit of a disservice when we approach them? So, uh, for example, the, the numbers of women in IT hasn't really moved. I mean, it's gone about 17%, 20% in many years. Um, do you think there's too much focus on kind of restating the problems rather than championing solutions? What's your kind of experience with that? I think we yes we hear too much far too much about the fact that there are few women the fact that there are few blacks in IT and so on in engineering in general, and and there's a lot said about uh, the statistics. So I find it frustrating hearing so much about statistics, but we don't actually hear about the personal experiences uh, um, and and of those who actually enter the profession because the statistics obviously numbers uh, obviously can only tell us so much uh, people will have different interpretations of the numbers um, so for example if you told me uh, um, they're only let's say this is just a number thrown out in the air they're only just 10 percent women in a particular field my first thoughts would be i wonder why is it because they're not happy and so on um, is it because it's not a an, an environment, a um, suitable environment for them. Somebody else would probably think, well, they don't like engineering. Somebody else would think they're not good at engineering. So they're all sort of just different uh, um, ways of looking at the numbers. And I think um, if we just focus on these, you'll never get to the bottom of the problem. Now, there are all sorts of different issues uh, um, that could explain, potentially explain these, these low numbers. Uh, perhaps we, think, we should be thinking more about this and, and, and focusing more on the reasons why and trying to do something about that. 
Mm, yeah, I completely agree with that. You see the numbers everywhere, but then actually finding out from people, you know, why did you leave or or change career or or yeah, or not, you know, not interested in that area and find out a bit more about the reasoning behind it. Because like you say, yeah, we can absolutely take our own kind of lens on it and assume, oh, they didn't like it or it wasn't for them or whatever. But yeah, finding out a bit more about people who've actually been there, um, maybe left uh, and that kind of thing to try and lift the lid on. On, on what's actually going on there. I think that's a really good point. And you said on our, our panel um, at the webinar recently about the issues around diversity and saying that not everyone sees the issues in the same way either. So we don't all think that it's something worth tackling. Yeah. How yeah, do you yeah, think yeah. we can help people see that diversity is everyone's responsibility and everyone's interest? Because I think that, you know, there's a lot of research out there to say that more diverse teams will perform better, more diverse organizations, um, you know, perform, perform better. But actually, helping people understand that diversity is everyone's responsibility. How do you think we might go about doing a better job of that? I think ultimately uh, um, what matters for most organizations is the bottom line. If you think about, there's a lot of research that says the company companies will do better if they're more diverse and so on and so forth, but it's not sufficient. To, it's not sufficient because it hasn't really made a change. Um, is it because people are not convinced about that? But I think more importantly is my company is doing fine. If you have a CEO thinking my company is doing fine, yes, it may do better. I'm told it would do better if I had a more diverse uh, um, leadership, but I'm doing fine now. Um, so there's no really incentive. The other way to look at it is from, a, so that's really removing the, the moral perspective and just looking at the bottom line. And unless people start for whatever reason, start real, realizing that, okay, company B next door is doing much better. Oh, why is that? Is it because they have a diverse? Yes, I'm doing fine, but company B is doing much better. Uh, um, then some, then a, a CEO may actually think about, or about what can be done, what they could do to improve the situation. So again, although it, um, it is about bottom line and money, um, there's also the sort of peer pressure. If you compare, for example, to seatbelts or drinking and driving, um, a few decades ago, somebody will get to the pub, have a few drinks and go, in, and go in and get into the car. Um, so it's about social norming, um, what what's, was acceptable um, a few years ago, a few decades ago, is no longer acceptable. And perhaps if you can get companies to think in that same way, there may be change. Mm. Mm. And when you mentioned about peer pressure, it just got me thinking about quotas. Um, I guess in a way that's sort of a, a form of peer pressure. You know, if the company's got certain quotas, then hiring managers feel, you know, they need to be more inclusive. What, what's your view on that? Um, quotas are a very difficult issue because mm. on the one hand, I think that in some instances it's needed, otherwise you'll never progress. On the other hand, there's always the issue of, especially from the perspective of the individual, um, am I just there because there's a quota? Are people perceiving me as being there just because there's a quota and therefore um, I'm not really included in where the decisions are being made? I'm simply there to tick the box. So it's a very complex issue. And although sometimes I believe we cannot move forward without them, at the same time, there, there's a lot of uh, um, implications behind the whole concept of quota. Mm. From a personal point of view, 
from the wider uh, uh, point of view of the organization or society as a whole. You also mentioned during the webinar that there's quite a high number of um, female engineers who are leaving quite early in their career. And actually, many of the ones that do stay on uh, probably wouldn't advocate for, for more women to come through to the profession because of some of their negative experiences. So where you've kind of stayed within the STEM industry, how have you found the experience of kind of staying and having the longevity and becoming a senior leader? How's that experience been for you? It's one of the things, and I keep on saying, I have a true a calling for engineering. Um, it's what I always wanted to do. Um, I couldn't think of anything better to do. So that's a job, that's, those are the tasks I do daily. When it comes to environment, um, you have to wonder, is this a place where you'd want your daughter to be in? And I certainly feel, no, it's not. Over the years, when you're younger, you hope it is going, it's going to change. It's only a matter of time before it changes. As you sort of your career progresses, you realize it's not changing. In some ways, it's, it gets worse. And when I say it gets worse, it's, it's not just that simply that I'm saying that you're sort of on a down, downward trend. It's simply that I, now I look, I look at it more as a spiral. We're gradually moving up, getting better. But every now and, now and again, we get a... Uh, a period, a phase where we sort of seem to take a few steps backwards. And this is one of the periods where we're taking one, two, three, or maybe even four steps backwards. And I think the whole thing, the whole, uh, uh, um, in a sense, backward steps is linked to more of a global picture of where we are, where different communities are, where our current leaders are. Um, without wanting to name names, um, we don't, we generally not. Um, uh, um, we don't. Gen we generally don't have very forward-thinking leaders in some places, and I'm talking worldwide. You know, I think with with things like that, it's again, it's that thing of it's it's a whole sort of like step change because, like you say, we move some steps backwards, and you've been there a long time and seen that you know the change has been very incremental, and with both the attitudes and, and with the the numbers, you know, it might be slowly getting there, but it is kind of a slow thing, and there are are still um, people out there leading organisations with quite sort of outdated views. So yeah, I think I think you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Fortunately. Definitely, um, BCS, you, you probably are aware we've got the, um, you know, the Embrace group um, looking at challenging some of these issues as well and kind of championing and representing the, the voices of underrepresented groups. So I think that's a really good, a really good step forward for us to kind of champion that more within the industry as well. That, that's the, the end of our, our time today, Dorothy. So thank you so much for, for your time and for your very interesting um, and insightful question um, answering. I really appreciate your time and um, we we'll hope to keep in touch and speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks thank you. Much. Bye.